0: Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brulé, coming up over the next 60 minutes.
1: We should take comfort that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again.
0: My guests today, Juliet Lindley and Marcus Shugle, A lot to go through today. Uh, Juliet uh, is with me. Where do you want to start uh, on this rather momentous uh, past few days?
2: Morning, Tyler. Well, I think I'll start with taking a look at the Italian press as the far right readies itself to sweep the polls in the upcoming September 25th election. I'll also look at former colony turned out in Tobago, my home country, and how it's mourning the loss of the lady who was its head of state until 46 years ago. And a new guide to Venice is out, written by some very special and, dare I add, usually quite handsome bloke.
0: Thanks. Very good. On the topic of handsome blokes, our editor, Josh Fennert uh, is over in London uh, this morning. What a segue. Josh, uh, maybe a bit of a, of a mood check uh, uh, as well. And maybe you'll be, of course, bringing us up to, to speed in terms of the tone and, of course, how things are unfolding on your side of the
3: channel. Absolutely, Tyler. And thank you for the generous introduction. Uh, today, I'll be reflecting from London on what happens really when a fixture of national life comes loose and asking, I suppose for the first time, who were the Elizabethans and what will the people who are under Prince Charles be like as he follows in that role?
0: Very good, our Josh Vennert. Plus, we'll hear the German perspective from Christoph Amen, the editor, of course, of Die Zeit magazine. It's the 11th of September. It's also Election Day in Sweden. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday.
2: Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brule.
0: And good morning from a rather uh, autumnal Zurich. If you had to uh, go into a dictionary and say, what does autumn look like and what does it feel like in middle Europa this is it this morning slightly damp because I think we probably had a little bit of rain last night but the sun is shining it's going to be an absolutely fantastic day Uh, and of course uh, as uh, we've been saying this is going to be a very uh, busy program Uh, we'll see what we can get into the next uh, 54 and a half minutes uh, or so from Zurich and also from London Uh, I'm very happy to say of course the voice you heard at the top of the program Juliet Linley is here this morning around the table with us good morning Juliet
2: morning Tyler hello
0: very quickly, uh, just maybe uh, your thoughts and reflections uh, over the r- really uh, since since Thursday um, and, and how you've, uh, of course, regarded this. Because uh, as you said at the top of the program, you're from Trinidad. Uh, you have, of course, the Commonwealth uh, roots. Impressions?
2: Yes, Commonwealth roots. I, I, I have to admit that even though I am a bit of a Republican, um, I, I was a bit touched watching uh, everything unfold. And, and so rapidly, as we were saying, just Two days before, we were saying goodbye to Boris Johnson, hello to a lady Prime Minister, and then all of a sudden, the 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 very lady who had shaken their hands just a couple of days before was was gone. But I I was I, I find a I found a very relatable opinion piece in the FT about how uh, Elizabeth had a very global. She she represented global Britain. She was global Britain personified. And looking at how her death has resonated far beyond the shores of Britain, and may I add, as far as the shores of Trinidad. So it's a former British. Colony. We gained independence in 62. We became a republic, thereby releasing the Queen of her duties as our head of state in 1976. And even in Trinidad, her death is being greatly mourned, especially by the older generation who they felt a powerful bond with her and her mother country. Certainly, my grandparents very much felt this immense reverence to the crown. And even though they were strongly pro independent, and when independence happened in the 60s, they were thrilled. But With her passing, I honestly feel, Tyler, that a lot of that sense of allegiance will be swept away. King Charles III doesn't cut it, in my view. He visited Trinidad twice, and no one really remembers that, but they very much remember his glamorous mother's state visit in 66, and more recently in 85 and in 2009. And, you know, they, they say with those bonds loosening, I rather think the relevance and even the, the existence of the Commonwealth could come into question. I know that you don't quite agree on that, but not just in Trinidad, but certainly in certain former colonies, especially during this time of heightened like, global awareness of uh, racial hierarchies and injustices.
0: Very good. I want to bring uh, Marcus uh, Sugarlin. Uh, very good to see you. Hopefully you had a good summer. We haven't seen you for a while.
4: Fantastic summer. Thanks. Very good.
0: Uh, and Marcus uh, is the associate professor at St. Gallen University. He's also roped me in. He's with the Institute of Marketing. Uh, I am going to be uh, jumping on the train heading to uh, to St. Gallen uh, to Looking talk to n- 90 incoming marketing students exactly this right. week.
4: Yep.
0: We're talking about uh, also, and, and Juliet touched on this, we're talking about uh, a brand story. I mean, we think we we talk about brand Britain. We talk about, of course, this confederation of of the Commonwealth, and yeah. and in many ways, it is almost it's almost like one of the original multinationals. Uh, in in many ways, I guess your view as as a marketeer, someone who is talking to people about marketing, w- what does this mean? Because in many ways, you could say this is it's not it's not very different from, of course, seeing a, a respected chairman, uh, a respected CEO stepping down uh, or, or, of course, passing from a corporation in that sense. Uh, and, and your impression what that means when we think about the integrity of a, a brand like the UK and, and, of course, the broader Commonwealth. Oh, goodness. How
4: much time do I have? Well, One okay. <laughs> we could revisit part of this also maybe on Tuesday in okay. St. Gallen. Right. Perfect. So the first thing that comes to my mind that there's um, that we try to differentiate always who's shaping that brand and how it's shaping a brand. So you've got the long-term perce- perceptions that you have from the UK, but I would say that the, the Queen of the Royal Family is something that is a brand of its own that's much, much stronger than the UK nowadays. The UK vanishes a little bit because of the... Of the um, differences in European politics and the Brexit and all that stuff. But I believe that. We talk in marketing in many cases about the brand shaping character, and I think that was what Queen Elizabeth was. She did a lot of stuff after the World War that was different to monarchy. She was shown um, in the war she was very active, and she as a person re- redefined sort of yeah you know, what the British monarchy was before, and she took a very active role in some pa- in places. In some cases she didn't do it as well as anybody expected in the 90s with the Annie hor- Horribilis, as she called it, and I think, um, you see there there's the similar things that happen when people represent a brand. they can not perform all the time in the way that they are supporting the brand. But by this special, personality traits that they bring in they make it more human mm. Josh Fennert
0: our editor uh, is is in London uh, and Josh you know, Mar- Marcus also raises a point here again talking about brand and how things are run it's been fascinating to watch really the the mechanics of the the bureaucracy and I would rather say you know quite quite a slick bureaucracy when everything has Kicked in, and of course, now we've heard uh, repeatedly. We know that this is is obviously something which has been rehearsed and and planned meticulously. Is that also part of of the reset in many ways? And I'm wondering how you know what this means for people sitting in the UK and and maybe beyond when you see something run so efficiently at a time when we've, to be honest, we've seen you know the wheels spinning off you know many parts of the UK.
3: Uh, good morning, Tyler. Hi, Juliet. Hi, Marcus. Yeah, I, I'm totally fascinated to hear. Uh, what brand Britain kind of looks like. Uh, even from Zurich, it feels a little bit different to be here. Um, but there's been some actually very insightful uh, comments throughout the papers. You know, the first few days are all slightly mawkish memorials of the Queen, the time she laughed, the time she did something which felt was felt to capture a mood. Now, increasingly, there's a little bit more thoughtful coverage about succession and what it means to be in a, a slightly new era. And there have been some quite interesting evaluations of of the Queen's method of staying popular. Uh, One thing that the Queen was said to have really enjoyed as a quotation is, for things to stay the same, we need to change. And I think that really kind of captures this idea that the monarchy sums up um, tradition, it sums up staying the same, but the way that the the queen kind of manoeuvred her family into public life, cut away the excess royals who were seen to be being wasteful, and even her very close family as they've suffered um, strife and problems with the press, she's kept them close enough to not appear callous but far enough away not to pollute the brand, and I think there's a very interesting um lesson in there as well. She was said to practice what was called the Marmite strategy, which isn't exactly what it sounds like. It wasn't about people loved her or the fact that they hated her. It references a marketing project that Marmite underwent to entirely change its logo, but to do so so slowly that people didn't know it was happening. And I think that's the stage that we're at now. We have um, in the UK a new king. We know exactly what he thinks about the environment, about architecture. Uh, We know that he talks to his plants sometimes and thinks that they respond. But somehow the Queen's forward planning and branding has enabled that not to feel as strange as it possibly could do. So a very interesting time here in the UK. And a little bit more um, reflection has allowed people to kind of look forward in this interesting way. Um, One of the great things in the UK papers which has been picked up today is the as uh, the children of uh, of the new King Charles uh, going on a walkabout in Windsor together, this incredibly divisive issue, slightly nauseating obsession in the press, to be honest, uh, uh, with these people. But uh, an idea that a brand, when pushed, can come together and show a bit of solidarity and unity, I think is a, a lesson learned here.
0: Mm. Uh, well, of course, you, you had many nods uh, from Marcus, certainly on the, the very slow uh, evolutionary um yeah, brand change uh, with Marmite, and, and we can maybe talk about uh, what that means for monarchy. I want to bring uh, Emma in uh, on on this point, and maybe we can also uh, address this. And uh, because it, it could be sort of the elephant sitting in the middle of uh, of studios on either side of the channel, Emma, which is this walkabout, uh, and 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 what this meant it was it was it was you know I think it, again it, like many things over the last seventy two hours or so, it, it it really sort of caught the journalists. And everyone they were rather sort of back footed by by all of this, and of course. We're talking about um, the Waleses and and the Sussexes walking around, looking at flowers, shaking hands around uh, Windsor. Castle, uh, yesterday afternoon or early, early evening. Uh, and I'm wondering how, how is this playing out? Because on, on one side, uh, yes, it, it, we've heard that this was something that was pulled together, you know, with an hour's notice. Uh, and, and then of course, whether, if you look at of course, a lot of the red top uh, press in the UK, lots of speculation, lots of royal insiders, uh, lots of whispers as to how all of this, uh, came about. But, uh, reading the room and the nation, Emma, if you can do that from Studio One at Midori House, are people buying it or they're just sort of happy to see that there's a bit of diplomacy and a bit of decorum and people can maybe go off and do their own thing 10 days from now?
1: I think we're a bit sideswiped by it and I am at least quite surprised by just how much the appearance of these four people walking outside Windsor Castle has dominated the headlines today. Um, It seems a little bit like a bit of a distraction from bigger, more important moments and issues that are happening. From a personal perspective, you look at them and you think, why didn't you do this when she was still alive? Because this this is, you know, the timing is strange and the mood was strange. You didn't get the impression Impression that there was any warmth among the four of them. You got the impression that they were doing this, and the minute that they, you know, I think we could have safely anticipated a stony silence in the Range Rover going back to Windsor Castle after the walkabout. But it suggested a slight, well, this this new kind of um, monarchy that Josh was talking about a moment ago. And what I what has always been astonishing about the Queen is that we fell in love, or people fell in love, with a woman that we didn't know. I think I could arguably say that if there was anybody that you wanted to get in front of your or behind the microphone in a studio for an interview, it would have been the Queen. But she maintained this astonishing public silence about her inner life. The only clues that we got were things a little bit even when she sort of played with, played with Paddington in the, in the last few years of her life. And you just got this warmth coming through then. What we have now is a royalty whose lives, their private lives, have been played out in public. So you have everything that has happened to Charles over the last 70 years of his life, good and bad. And now you have the new royals playing out their private lives in public. And I wonder whether we, the brand of the monarchy needs to focus on perhaps a little bit more of the dignity and the mystery that it was always so good at, that it was always so famous for under Queen Elizabeth.
0: Josh, uh, Juliette, I'm going to bring you in in a moment, but Josh, Emma sounds like she's read your column tomorrow. So in in tomorrow's monocle uh, minute, this is really uh, the key theme. It defines the top of of our bulletin tomorrow morning, um, which is the power of what's not said.
3: Absolutely. And I think um, Emma's made a a brilliant point there. I might have to co-opt a few of those points and uh, uh, rewrite. There's time to rewrite it, Josh, if you need to. But um, I think she's hit on the the, the main thrust of of that article, which is that selective silences, not saying things, is as powerful as saying things. And as the world has turned where every person unqualified in politics, uh, unknowing of all of the ramifications of what they say, is happy to broadcast exactly what they want to anyone at any time, just there, there is this way that we can all pull back a little bit and say, well, you know, am I adding to this situation? Um, and the amazing thing that it did for the Queen's brand is that, as Emma said, it allowed people to project whatever they wanted onto her. Um, you know, during the um, Scottish independence referendum in 2014, it should be very clear from the track record of her life, the time she spent in Scotland, her her deep admiration for its people and the countryside that um, she wouldn't want the union of four countries over which uh, an unbroken line has presided for a thousand years to break up. But she didn't come out and say that. She said people should think very carefully, which is a very laconic phrase, but a very powerful phrase and could be applied to all aspects of um, of life uh, in the UK and beyond at the minute. I think we can all uh, learn more by sometimes saying a little bit less and listening a little bit more, which is something that for someone born into extraordinary privilege, um, but denied an education, really, and, and told that she shouldn't be an educated woman because it might be uh, unnerving for the Prime Ministers she met. She was an autodidact. She taught herself um, about history and about the world, and um, she also held her tongue, uh, which is, uh, uh, I think, quite a good combo and something that Charles should certainly take forward julia maybe just first reflections on, on this walkabout and, and we said
0: was it a bit of a of a distraction and, and maybe as the as this has all been moving very quickly uh, of course it was orchestrated uh was was it the sort of moment uh that maybe of course the palace also needs to to be doing other things in the background because they have a very very busy eight days uh, ahead of them uh or and then i guess the other side too you could also say it was this engineer because people were looking for just a moment of, of levity, but has, has it come across as that?
2: Well, I'm very much unqualified to talk about this from the studios here in Zurich, but it was highly staged, very stilted, and from what I'm reading, apparently sources say that it was the king himself who sort of begged his eldest son to do this. It was clear that. The, the, the Waleses um, were, were making a, a, a great effort not to make eye contact with the Sussexes. And as, as Emma said, well, why didn't they just do this when the Queen was alive? Well, first of all, the Sussexes were on the other end of the ocean. They were absolutely persona non grata from what we hear from insiders. And the Waleses wanted nothing to do with them after the highly ungracious views they've expressed in many an interview over the last two years, openly blasting the royal family. So um, I think good for Charles for trying. I think good for William for making that effort and Kate. But uh, I think it's going to take much more for us to really buy into this and to, uh, to think that they've put their differences aside. And of course, there's still this um, Damocles sword hanging over them, apparently about the, the autobiography that Harry intends to publish. Is he going to put it on ice now? That would perhaps help to uh, sort of uh, get... Yes, yeah, so or you, you wonder whether yes, they're
0: they're pulling it off press because they want to they want to update it. Marcus, just uh, on this this notion of what a brand says and doesn't say, yes. is this is this something which uh, we would find in the the curricula at, at Saint Gallen? Because as you said, I mean, we think about. It, you know the the identity that a color has uh, around a brand we think about you know what it, you know how it sounds sonically uh, how it's backlit all of these different you know components when we think about you know the essence of brand but do we think about also yeah the negative space around it and and the silence
4: if you could see me I was nodding now for 1 minute you were <laughs> because in the first slide that I'm showing my students when we talk about communication is paul watzlawick you cannot not communicate so that's for me one of the mantras that we need to stick to but this means in a, positive, in a negative sense, if you don't say anything, everybody can attribute to you what they want to. Yeah? If Ms. Merkel was asked, do you step down and she doesn't answer, okay, she's going to be down in three months. So that's an idea that, that I think is very powerful. But I think here we've got the other dimension, which is the positive of it, positivity of it in saying you don't comment on everything. You exactly point out more what is very important to you and using all those different means of non-commuting, wearing the proper dress in the blue kind of style for the Europe, showing for the European Union and all that stuff, this is for me almost mastery in this non-communicating over the verbal space but the non-verbal space and being quiet sometimes, you know. When you look at my home country of Germany, and maybe we're going to touch on that as well, everything is up in the air. All hands are up every time. How much do we need to cool down? Do we need wood to heat our spaces? What is happening? And and everything is commented. And funny-wise, the Chancellor of Germany himself said, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to comment of every, on everything. And I think this is going to be the mastery for communication in the next years. Leaving out saying not to everything something, but really making a point when it's necessary. Because if you try to steer to everything, you come become non-differentiated. You're mm. saying something every time. It, it doesn't get that much better.
0: Uh, Emma, I want to. Uh, I'll start with you, and then Josh. I'm keen on on your views on this one. If we think back to, and certainly those people who who tuned into the BBC's coverage uh, to to Hugh he- to Hugh Edwards, uh, the BBC presenter, one of the top presenters, of course, uh, breaking uh, the news and really was the, the 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 figure that that really sort of guided us through this for the first two hours. It was it was an incredible jolt, not just because of the news, but suddenly we saw broadcasting change It's broadcasting, you know, jump back to a time of, of, it felt like the 1970s in a very positive way, because we've been through two years of, of having, you know, people, you know, and correspondents, not just experts joining uh, all kinds of TV programs on Zoom. We know what everyone's, you know, restyled bookcase looks like. We know what everyone's kitchen table or the background of their kitchen shelves look like, because no one's been going into studio. And here we had something suddenly, all correspondents in studio Everybody in a tie, satellite trucks out, uh, you know, absolute precision and 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 broadcasting as certainly those of us who grew up in a television generation loved. It, in many ways, it, it felt like the the industry that we we all joined, uh, and so there was this enormous formality. And so, Emma, as a broadcaster, mm-hmm. uh, and someone knows a thing or two about the BBC, do you think this also marks a little bit of a reset? Do you think people are going to step step back and say? well, this looked good, and this is also what professionalism looks and feels like.
1: It, I think it felt and looked like a very different BBC from the one that some of us who know how it works from the inside have, have seen over the last couple of years. And I would agree with you that the reason why it went, it came together on Thursday so well is because for the last two two de- two and a half decades, about three or four times a year, the BBC rehearsed what we would call a Category 1 death, uh, which would include Prince Philip, Prince Charles, the Queen, I think it's now Prince William because he's the direct heir to the throne. And what would happen is a, a, a section of the, the newsroom would be cordoned off and you would have what would be, uh, what would happen is you would re- rehearse it as if as if it were happening in real time. So you would get what, what the, the communication would come from either the palace or the press association that an, an announcement would be made within 45 minutes, at which point everybody read that to be someone has died. So the black ties were brought out, the black curtains were brought out, and they rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it. And there was that element of preparation and professionalism which made the television work. And you're right, it became one of those great events in broadcasting history that you just had to get right. What surprised me was that Hugh Edwards was wearing a black tie before she died. Obviously, that was the that was the signal to everybody that this was not a rehearsal. This was going to be happening and that we should all be ready for it. But Hugh has been doing that. He's been readying himself that for a very, very long time. Plus, a lot of credit has been given to him for the fact that he had just spent twenty-seven, well, the best part of 72 hours covering the replacement of the prime minister. So he, would, he was teed up for that one as well. What's also nice is that we're not just celebrating broadcasting at its best. We're celebrating newspapers because I think many of us have gone out and bought a paper for the first time in a very, very long time. A newspaper and print can reflect a moment in history in a way that quite simply, I'm sure you'd agree, the internet just can't.
0: No, Josh, this is this is one thought that I, I had, and maybe we have to discuss it more and figure out who's going to write this column. But Emma makes a very good point because to see the covers of the FT, and, and there must have been extraordinary mobilisation on the presses around Europe. I was very surprised that the FT, given the time that the story broke, was still able to get a fresh front cover out even in Zurich. You know, in this and of course, this is I think either our papers, you know, the FT here either arrives from, from Italy or or Germany. So it was quite remarkable. And again, as Emma's saying, there was there was a real marker then when you see a newsstand full of stories
3: all leading with the same images and the same headlines. Absolutely, and I think preparation was key. Um, one one thing that kind of betrayed um, how prepared some people were was anyone that read the Guardian and um, the day after saw that the date that the Queen died had been listed wrong. It had been listed as twenty twenty three, and the reason for that is a lot of these obituaries were pre written. They were updated periodically, of course. But you know, um, I'll come back to the, the the BBC in a moment, which I, I agree a lot of people rallied around. A few people in the office. Um, told me that as soon as they saw the news, they knew they had to turn on the BBC, whatever it was—the radio, the the news—that was going to be their accompaniment for this difficult time in national life. But just the preparedness of of things like TfL, Travel for London, every single bus stop by nine uh, pm that evening had a a backlit picture of the Queen preloaded uh, everywhere you could imagine. The estate agents opposite the office have reframed their uh, you know fancy uh, Marylebone kind of penthouses in a kind of voguish. Dove Grey with a kind of backlit ghostly picture of the Queen on them. Everyone mobilised so quickly, but there that was perhaps even though, because psychologically we weren't prepared, you know, people needed to in some sense understand that this was going to happen at some point. And on the BBC's coverage, I completely agree there's a good piece in the Sunday Times about how Hugh Edwards summed up a national mood, his eyes glistening, but his words kind of resolute in what was being reported I did think it also exposed this kind of funny world of the slightly spidery royal correspondent creeping around after the the royals. Uh, there's, there was quite a famous thing caught on um, microphone of, of Prince Charles looking out um, and then saying to his two young sons, that dreadful man's here again, of the BBC's uh, Nicholas Witchell, which does show a, a little bit of the tension around this. There's been great respect paid to the royal family. But over the years, and actually over Queen Elizabeth's reign, that respect has been ebbed away by the newspapers. And the interesting thing that Emma uh, and you have mentioned there is how central the newspapers have become to that commemoration. So they've almost come full circle um, in that respect. Um, and if you're in Midori House, you'll see by our senior producer, Carlotta Rebello's desk, every single newspaper from Friday, which she asked uh, everyone in the office to keep for her, you know, Portuguese, born in Madeira, has lived in the UK for a few years, but feels that that is an interesting uh, commemoration of something, or perhaps it's for her her mother or grandmother, but an interesting memento and a moment for the media. Let's hope that the role that the BBC has played in this crisis, the steadying hand on the rudder that it's been, um, as it was during COVID, isn't immediately forgotten as funding cuts and the renewal of its charter uh, uh, imminently discussed uh, by the slightly anti-BBC and Conservative Party.
0: Josh, speaking of, of course, uh, steady hands uh, also on the tiller when it comes uh, to news headlines, I'm happy to say uh, Emma Nelson has them for us back in London.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. The coffin of Queen Elizabeth begins its journey from Scotland to London today. It will be carried by gamekeepers from the Balmoral Castle, where she died, to a hearse, which will then make its way to Edinburgh. She'll then be taken to London while she will lie in state for four days. India observes a day of national mourning today. Australians will have an extra public holiday to mourn the Queen's death. That'll happen on September the 22nd. Meanwhile, the former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown says he expects a new king, King Charles III, to streamline the monarchy. He said he could see a smaller, more relaxed structure, similar to that in Sweden. In other news, Ukraine's rapid counteroffensive is gaining ground, with Russian front lines in some areas collapsing. It's being reported that the Ukrainian advances will be the most significant since Russia withdrew from areas around Kiev in April. And Swedes vote today in an election pitting the incumbent centre left Social Democrats against right wing populists. Those are the headlines here in London. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich.
0: Thanks, Emma, and uh, thank you very much uh, for the segue there, because uh, it is just uh, 10.31, uh, coming up to 10.32 uh, here in Zurich. Same time also in Stockholm, where we're heading now, Election Day in Sweden. I'm very happy to say that we are joined on the line now by the NZZ, the Nord-Zirka-Zeitungs uh, correspondent in the Nordics, uh, Rudolf Herrmann, uh, is there for us. a uh, Good morning. Good morning. Maybe just set the stage for us. Of course, uh, people are listening around around the world. Uh, people's, of course, attention Rudolph has uh, been, uh, or at least many, uh, their attention has been diverted by by other news stories. But here we have here we have really what is one of the the most fascinating uh, elections to watch. Uh, the NZZ is always. Has been taking a very nuanced view uh, of of Sweden, I would say. Uh, your coverage and how you look at the country um, has been quite fascinating for for a variety of reasons. Um, and one reason you we know, we were keen to talk to you today is because it's it's interesting. You know, you can read the Swedish press, and, and as as you would know, because it, it's your beat. Oftentimes, uh, the Swedish newspapers are, are, are sometimes not saying uh, maybe what's on the minds of a nation uh, and, of course, are, are very correct in their approach. Um, and it's interesting, a lot of Swedish people are sometimes very keen to read the NZZ because you're often saying things that they just simply can't read within their own borders. So how is that for a setup for you? Uh, how do you view this election and what's going to happen today?
5: Um, well, uh It's going to be a continuation of the last four years in a way because um, there are two camps, uh, center left and center right, and they have been uh, quite even in the last four years. And this is going to continue according to
0: all the forecasts.
5: So there's no uh, better future in sight, if I may say so. Hmm. It's,
0: uh, are there any sort of sense of surprise? Because looking at the Svenska Dagbladet, of course, one of the newspapers of, of record, they were talking about things being incredibly close. Um, and of course, you know, when we talk about you know, potential kingmakers, kingmakers in another way, the Swedish Democrats are sort of, are, of course, have seen, you know, the party that could upset things. Also the party, which was very fringe for a while, but now we're talking about a party, which of course does have a voice, has certainly a large part of the voice of, of the people, but the flip mm-hmm. side of it, of course, is, is many parties saying that they they won't go into a coalition with them. Um, but if they if there is some type of surprise today, if they if they inch up even a few more percentage points than what the polls are saying, um, what could could happen? Or you think it's just going to be typical business as usual uh, Swedish style?
5: Uh, no, no. Uh, I think the thing that could happen uh, is that the Swedish the Sweden Democrats become the second largest party after the Social Democrats which would be uh, a bit of an earthquake in a way because the uh, sort of the left-right contradiction in the, in the last maybe uh, 50, 100 years always rested on, on the conservatives, the liberal conservatives, the so-called moderates, and the social democrats. Now, if a party comes into play that is uh, sort of marginal has been marginalized by most parties over the last years, that changes the equation, of course. Um, the Sweden Democrats have already arrived in the in, in the centre-right camp. They are accepted by the centre-right parties as a pol- potential coalition partner or a support partner, which is a big change against uh, the last the, the last election. So so this is the uh, the surprise that could happen, and it would change politics in a way that Swedes have to face up. To a reality they didn't want to face up for a long time.
0: And certainly that's been the, the narrative a little bit of Magdalena Anderson. She was uh, campaigning yesterday in Rinkeby and she's, you know, she, was, she was saying here's an area that only with maybe a turnout of a little over 50%. She said, you know, the, the very sort of notion of, of Sweden is under threat by the likes of, of, of course, uh, the Sweden Democrats. But on the other side, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, actually the Sweden that they like, that sort of went out the window a long time ago. Is there a recognition uh, on the part of, of course, of, of of the of the current PM and her party um, that uh, that this this really is an issue and that they have to, and you know, and they have not necessarily have to get back to center, but they have to recognize that there is a very disgruntled part of the population who are not happy with gun crime. Um, you know, obviously, we've seen, of course, a spike in violence. Um, and certainly territory, which, which you've covered very well, and maybe in a much more candid way in the NZZ than we've seen the, the Swedish press do it. Um, has that registered with them, or are they are just sticking with this sort of comforting narrative uh, that maybe is a little bit passé at this point?
5: Uh, no, the, this element is certainly there. And when I was watching the last election debate, the big election debate on Friday, Friday night, there was a really interesting moment when Magdalena Andersson uh, talked about uh, crime, gang crime, talked about segregation, talked about immigration, all the big problems that uh, that are problems and are recognized as a pro- as problems now. She used words that would have been uh, improbable or impossible to use for a social democrat just a few years ago. And she used words that seemed to echo what the Sweden Democrats had said four, five, six years ago. <laughs> so it was really, it was really quite, quite a special moment because in, in practice, most parties uh, harden their line uh, in these questions. They wouldn't openly admit that, but uh, there has been a shift. And uh, when you have uh, an electorate uh, of maybe 20% that will vote for the Sweden Democrats, then they will vote for them because the Sweden Democrats now can say, well, we've said it all along, and mm. you joined us now. Uh, so we were basically right. And this, this there is a, 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 an undercurrent of sentiment going that direction.
0: How much of this is uh, political posturing and, and lip service? So, uh, of course, if we if we end up with something which looks very much like it has for the last four years, Will government be held to account if, if, of course, if the Sweden Democrats come in in power, um, they will obviously as, as, as as a serious and second player, will they be able to push things through? Because, again, you know, I don't think we I could sort of imagine a sort of divided Sweden. Uh, that that we see right now where people and you know and many and I would say you know many uh, Swedish friends they they do feel a little bit under threat they don't recognize parts of their country anymore and this has happened in a very very short span of time so mm-hmm. do you do you think that, that we will see proper policy measures coming through um or will it just be still a very Swedish gentle gentle and uh, and maybe it gets pushed out to another election
5: uh, well, I think I can imagine that Sweden is going in the way of, a, let's say, a Danish scenario, where the the Danish Social Democrats they have been uh, tougher on immigration for a long time, but when they came to power uh, a few years ago, uh, they they increased their tough stance and they undercut the uh, the, the the Danish. Uh, right nationalists in uh, people's party to an extent that they, they are vanishing from parliament so this might be a scenario if the if the center-left stays in power um, i'm not sure if it really if, if that really works out in sweden as it did in, in denmark uh, the other thing for me that is hard to imagine is is a direct role of the sweden democrats in a government because i don't think sweden is ready for that but you have a, uh, They will. They will pull the strings from uh, from the background uh, if if a centre-right government emerges
0: yeah it's 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 fascinating to hear you say that uh, we, whether we would see of course uh, someone being the, the front person and changing policy and certainly from the side of the, of the Sweden Democrats And then I guess the you know the, the flip side to that though is of course you know no one thought that you'd have you know kids being shot as as innocent bystanders in in public parks all of these things I'm, I'm just curious from from your perspective Rudolf as a correspondent who's covered that patch um, certainly for some time. Your view from the ground, and just speaking, of course, to voters. Uh, maybe not even just thinking about this election, but what what is the evolution that you've witnessed in the country? And I guess what's fascinating is also how you compare it and contrast it to a country which you know many people around the world off, often confuse Switzerland with Sweden.
5: Mm, well, I think I think the biggest problem here is that um, the problems that are related to questions of integration and immigration they have been uh not ignored but suppressed by the swedish public debate for too long so they were allowed to build up over years and uh it is very hard to solve a problem that has built over two or three decades to solve it within within an election cycle so this is not going to happen and this is what makes makes it so hard because you have to commit you have to work hard uh in the best uh, version uh, uh bipartisan and this is this is really a, uh, puts politics to a test. So, I'm not I'm not really optimistic about about uh, a solution because a quick solution is not possible, and for a long-term solution we have to really work together. And and uh, Swedish politics has been divided into a left and a right wing block for too long uh, to suddenly start sort of cooperating. Uh, across
0: the blocks. Rudolf Hermann, NZZ's correspondent in the Nordic region. Uh, of course, a busy day ahead for you as well uh, with the Swedish elections underway. Hopefully, we can catch up with you, uh, certainly over the next uh, 24 or 48 hours, uh, to uh, see how everything is unfolded. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. We're going away
6: for a short break. Uh, af- back after this. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, brought to you in association with Spain. Spain has an inexhaustible capacity to surprise. From its rich cultural traditions to its landscapes, it's a place of many wonders for people of all tastes and interests. A country whose cuisine offers almost infinite regional variation, Spain boasts far more than just paella and gazpacho. And whether you crave urban conviviality or the serenity of nature, a perfect Iberian bolt hole awaits. Few countries can equal Spain when it comes to homegrown produce. This abundance of delicious ingredients informs countless regional cuisines that have been perfected over centuries. Across the peninsula, chefs delight in reinventing traditional recipes for foodies craving fresh flavours. But where will you stay? In the centre of the old town, with the clink of glasses below your balcony, or deep in wine country, where the lodgings are as ancient as the vines, and dishes are designed around native varietals. With 5,000 kilometres of coastline, beaches abound. And it's easy to avoid the crowds by choosing a rural town where the welcome is as warm as the weather. Everything you're dreaming of this weekend in Spain this summer. Rediscover Spain and reimagine it. Spain, spreading sunshine on Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24.
0: you're back with monocle on sunday i just gone uh, 1744 in tokyo 1044 here in zurich and berlin where we're heading now to join christoph Amend, editorial director at zeit magazine of course the powerful supplement magazine component of the Die zeit brand good morning
7: good morning sir uh,
0: tell me uh, first uh, an end of end of summer check-in i'm sure that uh, it was uh, yeah a very certainly a very sunny and warm one uh, in in the Amend household <laughs>
7: it was. And then, yeah, we also had a great summer in Berlin, and uh, now it's the big uh, rentree, as they say in Germany, right? Uh, so, uh, new hotels are opening up at the moment in Berlin, which is pretty exciting, uh, new restaurants being opened up, so everyone's returning and, uh, yeah, waiting for, for maybe a hot fall, right? And with uh, so many changes happening in in the world
0: we we, we certainly hope so, but uh, maybe we'll'll we'll come to hotels uh, in a moment, but um, <laughs> I'm keen to uh, to just get uh, your view as an editorial director on of course events on the other side of the channel, how this has been playing out uh, certainly on the pa- in the pages of of your main newspaper. Die uh, Zeit, of course, this is obviously something which was, was, was one of those moments that was also missed as well, because you come out on a Thursday. Uh, so th- thank God for obviously the digital uh, component of it. But it was interesting talking about the power that newspapers have played, uh, certainly within all of this. But uh, how, how is, what's the view been from, uh, from Germany? Because certainly... Uh, We've had uh, the the French, I wouldn't say scoring points, but uh, I think the elegance uh, of Mr. Macron's uh, statements have been very interesting. But uh, yeah, if we were to look at everything from Bill Zeitung to the Tagus show, how have you viewed this?
7: Well, you know, you were talking about the Queen having been this global brand uh, early in the show. And I think that's certainly true for Germany. I mean, first of all, because we don't have a royal family. <laughs> and uh, second of all, of course, there's a big, you know, as you know, old uh, family roots, uh, the royal family in Germany. And I was I was uh, uh, doing a podcast with one of the former German presidents, Joachim Gauck, uh, a few weeks ago. and. Uh, my co-host Jochen uh, asked uh, during the conversation, well, what, what do we actually need a president for in Germany? And my quick response was, because we don't have a queen. And the former German president, uh, Joachim Gauck, was laughing at, mo- at that moment and uh, was nodding and said, oh, that's a good answer. And I think that sort of role that the queen has played for, you know, during those 70 years uh is i think just a tremendous and important role and i think we're from a german perspective we're looking at um very cautiously now what's happening with the king and all the changes in in the commonwealth
0: and from i guess a a german not just foreign policy perspective but maybe mood on on the street uh you know it, it means obviously something very different as a as a canadian and british passport holder as i am of course as someone uh, who's holding uh, a passport from the bundes republic uh, but nevertheless we are all part of a, a european community uh, i'm using that in the broader sense obviously the uk uh, not uh, not uh, let's say a, a card-carrying family member uh, does it you know when you think about how this resonates on the street uh, is there is there beyond sort of the, the 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 harry uh and and megan walk about and how that might play in the in the more red press in germany uh, but is well, there sort of a sense that this is is also a turning point for europe as well
7: i think so i mean you know now everyone's looking at all the you know the the, the problems that the, the, the king charles iii is facing you know with all the changes of the commonwealth i mean i just read in the news today the first one of the first members of the the commonwealth has already uh, announced that it was you know trying to become a republic so sounds like we might have
0: lost Christoph Amond there we'll try to uh, to get him get him back uh if we can Juliet because uh, you're always on standby with lots of other stories we'll going to take this from uh of course from uh, Berlin uh, to, to, to to Rome what, via what?
2: Sweden perhaps or or, or,
0: or, or via Sweden, Sweden if if we want Sweden. to
2: and in Italy uh the far-right alliance Fratelli d'Italia is poised to win a clear majority in both houses of parliament in the upcoming general election with its rather backward- looking views on immigration and and homosexuality. So final opinion polls, and opinion polls close two weeks right before the election. They're suggesting that Giorgia Meloni's neoconservatives are on track to be the biggest single party with about 25% of the vote, with Miss Meloni tipped to be Italy's first female prime minister. Now, you're a feminist. I'm a feminist, Tyler. Of course, it would be a great step forward for our country to have a, a, a lady prime minister. However, I have to let,
0: say, let me ask you, how much does that play into all of this, though? So, you know, as She's female. Yeah, because obviously we know what the rhetoric is. Uh, and that that, of course, is is important. It's more the rhetoric than the then. Woman. Yes.
2: Yeah. Let's be honest. And can I say uh, we all kind of missed Draghi and he was sort of the right person at the right time for the country. And we're not going to talk here about why he was pushed out, but it's still smarts.
0: Indeed, uh, we're going to go back to Berlin. So thank you for just taking us uh, t- down to w- down to Rome uh, for for a moment and making a good segue, of course, uh, with the uh, the Swedish elections. Uh, Christoph Amund is. Back, uh, Christoph. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm thrilled that you're there. Just uh, while while we have you, um, and we'll make a bit of a tack change. You 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 teased us at that that the intro that this is sort of an autumn where a lot of things are, are happening in Berlin. Two high, very high-profile hotels. We've been hearing about them for a while. <laughs> Their doors are finally going to get flung open. Have you had a sneak preview? Uh, Chateau Royal uh, opening, Telegraph uh, as as well. What what can we expect uh, if we're going to come and fill uh, the, uh, the the hospitality costs offers uh, in the German capitalist autumn.
7: Well yeah, I mean there's been a a, a gap I guess in those, you know, in the, in the genre of a uh, beautifully designed boutique hotels and I think the Chateau Royal where I've been now once or twice uh, will I think fill that gap. I mean they they have included a restaurant that I was a big fan of in the 2010s called Dottier, uh run by um the uh, uh I think we have to fill those coffers
0: in Germany because it seems that uh, there must there's there's, there's obviously uh, communication problems. Uh, we you know we've heard that Berlin is sometimes uh, you know sexy but poor, um, and maybe that also comes to to the to the technology as well. Uh, I'm sorry that we lost uh, Christoph Amend. But Julian. But also, bathroom. but I was going to say also, Marcus was was shaking his his head uh, or nodding his head as well when Christopher was talking about those hotels. Uh, so as a German, uh, of course, uh, but uh, but living and based and based here, it's kind of fascinating to see the reinvention of the city and maybe. A, a, comes at at a good time again because uh, here you have uh, well, I mean, the cities when you when you think about sort of hospitality at the moment, it's still suffering from this airport and on one on one side, I mean the airport got bashed, of course, it was delayed and everything. And then you actually go and experience the airport and it's also a catastrophe as well. So it wasn't that this was just bad press. um it, it really is not working so well. So maybe maybe it needs a bit of a new uh, <laughs> Berlin needs a bit of a new narrative.
4: I'm born Berlin, so living there for 25 years, I'm still missing some of the old Berlin. I'm still missing the times when the wall run down. Missing Tegel? A a lot a lot because it was so close to the city no but I think this city really needs it it, it needs an injection it needs an injection of of vitality it needs an injection of of, of creativity the the gallery weekend is just right ahead with a lot of creative people coming to Berlin and a lot of art lovers coming to Berlin but I think they need more because the city is so much down, the whole club culture is gone Uh, the restaurants have been down so I'm looking very much forward for all those new openings that were mentioned um, that will be coming up and hopefully there's going to be something that you can say it's Berlin and not only poor but sexy yeah indeed Uh,
0: Juliet and we uh, thank you for doing an amazing tap dancing number uh, a little earlier when we we lost uh, Christoph Uh, maybe just a Anything else Latest
2: from you? Story? No. Yeah, I mean, if well, you want, if you want Vatican writing in asking, will the Pope go? will the
0: will, will Pope? Funeral? Will the Pope be going to the Queen's funeral?
2: Uh, likely not. He doesn't usually go to funerals. If anything, he presides over them. And this is an Anglican one, not a Catholic one. He'll likely send his number two, prime minister's equivalent, that would be Cardinal Pietro Parolin, the Secretary of State for Vatican Affairs, and probably a couple of uh, English cardinals.
0: Okay, Uh, and you had another story which you... Of course. I know you had... Those
2: handsome blokes.
0: Yeah, tell us about the handsome blokes. Well, we've got a new guy. By the way, there's two handsome blokes in the studio (laughs) because I've just heard that uh, our editor and chief Andrew was straight off the plane from New York, was on the Heathrow Express, left his bag because he was so excited to be on Monocle on Sunday, was able to go back to the rail authorities god is back so he's in the studio as well but tell us your handsome bloke story before we uh, we go back to london
2: well we have a new guide to venice out and it's written by none other than its gondoliers so it's full of insider tips like where would a gondolier take you on a first date and where to
0: buy velvet slippers
2: Of course! And nuggets about Isola della Giudecca, which used to be full of factories and is now full of art galleries and artist studios. Now, here's a nugget. How many films do you think have been shot in the city known as La Serenissima? Just give me a number.
0: Just a number. Just go for it. Uh, 152.
2: 700. And how many piazzas are there in Venice?
0: I
4: know this is now you're looking at Come Marcus on, not Fra- me Marcus goodness
2: Piazzas
0: Piazzas
4: yeah. bridges I would know they are less than in Berlin but I don't know the number Piazza that's
2: one Piazza San Marco all the others are called Campi Campos okay oh, that's camp. a bit of
4: a ch- uh, there we you don't go. like a trick By question the on a uh, Sunday
2: guide.
0: morning uh, let's uh, head back to London just uh, for our listeners if you are Planning your morning run or your brunch or whatever it may be uh, and running by the clock this morning, you're listening live. We're going to run a little bit over time as this is turning into being a bit of a special edition in more ways than one uh, of Monocle on Sunday, our Andrew Tuck. Uh, Andrew, you breathless, you caught your breath. Uh, And uh, welcome back from New York, by the way. Uh, thank you very much, Tyler. I, I'm I'm fine. My my suitcase
8: is a little breathless. It's been all over the place. <laughs> I managed to jump, jump off the train. Just I was getting onto the subway, and I, I thought, hold on, I'm missing something here. And it was my big wheelie suitcase. So ran back, and I must say they've been very efficient. They they tracked it down, and it agreed to uh, return to Paddington Station to uh, come with me into Midori House.
0: So wait, so it it made the return journey back to Heathrow, and then came back again.
8: Yes, it it went back to Heathrow. <laughs> It, then it, it came back again, and then it was reunited with me by a very nice woman who was
1: in
0: charge of the of all the security there. At, uh, well, I was going to wonder, did you also set off a security alert as well? Because, you know, a, a big wheelie bag as well. In these times, uh, of course, where um, I imagine security uh, is uh, rather tight in London, given all of the things that are going on, uh, yeah, there, there could have been a bit of a red alert. Well,
8: I think it's all okay, but she did say, would you like to open your bag and just check that everything is there? And I thought, God, I don't really want to be getting my... my, my <laughs> (laughs) I worn underpants out in the middle of Paddington Station to to check that all five pairs are there. Very good.
2: And for being Paddington Station, you could have had marmalade sandwiches. I
8: know. I know. I I should have looked out for the bear in in, in, probably uh, morning
0: today, of course. And maybe why don't we rewind a little uh, for a moment. Of course, uh, you wrote a very interesting column. And I, I would say actually a rather measured column Yesterday, uh, reflecting on being in the United States, you hadn't been to uh, for, to New York for uh, was it th- what three? Yes, yeah, three years. years
8: three, uh, over three years now. Yeah,
0: which is remarkable. And and there you were um, at this extraordinary moment, not just given everything that happened, but also given uh, your role as an editor in chief uh, as well. And you told the story through the lens, uh, of course, of uh, yes, of of being an Englishman in New York in the news business. But then also the lens or the many lenses uh, focused on uh, all of those U.S. news anchors and and how this story uh, was was being told uh, from the other side of the Atlantic.
8: Well, first of all, Tyler, there's a, a need to make everything a little bit huggy and personal and teary. It feels on a lot of American television. So, in the in the on that first day, they were they were literally trying to find people who were crying. So they they'd gone to the tea and sympathy uh, restaurant in one station uh, in, in New York, and they managed to find two. Um, stout uh, older american ladies who had for some time apparently like for two or three years lived together in london and uh, they were crying over their tea because they were remembering how glorious their three years had been in london but there was no story and they were they were really scraping they managed to find the the british consul where there were like three bunches of flowers left outside but it it, is difficult because it's it's it's, it's not an American story, which is, is right that they put a different filter on it. But also, as you know, you're feeling today, we, we, we're just talking about this in the studio, that, of course, it's a sadness and, and mourning. But it's not the sadness of a young person dying. It's, it's an acceptance that this was a, a woman who was in her 90s. And, and most people kind of seem to be celebrating her life as, as much as mourning her loss. But some of the American, even last night I was watching and there's you know, four or five people in the studio, they throw to their, their anchor outside Buckingham Palace and then the, 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 the guy in the studio says, anyway, I hope you enjoy the rest of the festivities today. And it's like, festivities? It's not, it's not, it's not a party. It's like the, the tone of it is, is, is just so peculiar for, for someone who's a Brit who doesn't know everything about the intricacies of the royal family. But when you, you watch back in,
0: it does seem strange. Indeed, and uh, probably as, as you were making your way to studio, we were chatting to to Emma about you know, this, and, and and Josh also commenting on on maybe, and this is I just I'm keen on your view on this, whether we sort of move to a period of of, of reset because you're going to have you know a, over a week now of a very formal, well planned, uh, very upright uh, occasions, and and cer- and there will be ceremonies and there's pageantry around. All of this. And, and do you think that this is something which, which lingers, Andrew, beyond, uh, of course, um, the queen laying in state uh, and, and, of course, the funeral afterwards, that there is, uh, I guess I'm sort of getting at maybe a sense of not just civility, but, but just doing things properly. And then we were reflecting on the, what was amazing watching the BBC's coverage is it felt like old school television. It felt like TV as it used to be and not just TV, you know, on a big broadcaster told through an iPhone.
8: Yeah, I think there's a sense of you know, knocking heads together, of coming together, of putting some some of the the things that normally tear, both you know on a, on a family level for the royal family and for a national level uh, uh, to one side, and you hope that those bed in. And interesting, you know, we, you know, we think of Charles as you know as this this you know traditional old royal. But we have to remember, you know, that his interest in environmental issues, you know, that he is somebody who is a great supporter of all kind of multi-faith organisations. He genuinely has uh, an interest in in helping people who are less fortunate than himself through the Prince's Trust. That actually, in, in the background, he's quite a, a, a modern royal and does have the potential, I think, to Ease things, or uh, well, ease Britain into a into a better place. But we'll just have to wait and see what happens. It's 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 it is going to be complicated. But he is in in many senses uh, a modern royal who could do well.
0: Andrew, just, uh, going, uh, and just going and maybe sort of looking at also the the coverage. And I mean, of course, you've had access to the BBC as well. I think you've also seen that the broadcaster, I mean, maybe broadcasters, you know, elsewhere in the UK are also trying to you know, really present as much uh, of the Commonwealth as possible. So you know, we had Lise Doucette uh, last night uh, reporting from, from Ottawa, quite a large report about the Queen's visits to Canada. Uh, and there's this, this real sense of sort of bringing in the Commonwealth. And I'm not sort of saying that there's maybe strings being pulled in the BBC n- uh, newsroom, but, but do you have sort of a feeling as well that, you know, as you said, knocking heads together... Let's have a level conversation about the Commonwealth because there's been such a negative uh, you know, view about it. And, and of course, you know, and much of it sort of for obvious reasons and maybe reasons of our time. But there's also much of the Commonwealth has done that is also good a, as well. And, and do you think this is also a slight reset to and I'm not saying that obviously there's spin doctors in the background, um, but maybe this is just a moment to you know, br- bring things back to the middle a bit more?
8: Well, I think you know, that you've seen, you know, especially in the U.S., you know, a few academics who always come up, come out at these moments to kind of say something they feel will be shocking and try and challenge the the status quo, whether it's of the U.K. or of, of any organisation. And maybe that's their job, and that's fine. But and let they not, should stay in their lane, by yeah, the way. Well, that's just my view. Yeah, exactly. Is I, I, and I don't I don't know that they they speak for big communities of people. I, I made reference in my column yesterday when I was walking to, uh, in, in New York just after the death had been announced. Within an hour outside this this church in, in the West Village, there was a sign up with a, a picture of the Queen and it said that they would be holding a service. And it made the point, it said, you know, uh, in, in our local community, we have many people from Barbados, from uh, Antigua, from uh, former uh, British you know, colonies, obviously, but they were making the point that this 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 community also wanted to celebrate her life as well. So I don't know that it falls so easily as some of these critics would have you believe. But yeah, I do think it is a a, a moment where. The, the, the debate about you know, what Britain means and what, what, what it does can move forward and doesn't keep dwelling on, on the, only on the past. Of course, recognises things that have gone wrong, wrong in the past and, and difficulties and, 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 and things that were not good, but manages to build on that and move forward as a community. It, otherwise, you know, otherwise, you just get caught in this loop going round and round and round. And the Queen represented many things, but you know, she also represented the notion that people could come together in the Commonwealth.
0: Julia, just you—you you touched on, uh, yes, of course, Trinidadian heritage on your side, and that view from Port of Spain. Do you think it's it's truly sort of divided? Young generation thinks, okay, uh, colonial legacy, and and this was was you know was all you know, as it sort of presented unilaterally bad uh, for the country versus an older generation who yeah maybe have also first hand recollections of visits and all of those things you said maybe the, the maybe the king doesn't sort of you know uh, won't play as well there but obviously there's there's glowing memories of of course queen elizabeth
2: very much generational i think the the youngsters i mean look at my daughter she's 15 she said to me i heard that the queen ordered diana's death I'm like, where are you getting this information from? This is just an example of everything that's being spewed out on social media. So it is very much generational. And I do very much think it is also possibly racial. And so certain Commonwealth countries, perhaps like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, have a different perspective to um, other countries that are perhaps less developed and mm. have a bit of a
0: sketch here. But it's, it's been fascinating watching the, the BBC and you're seeing you know, people from Nigeria and people from you know, Car- Caribbean countries as well also speaking very Glowingly as well. I think so,
2: teenagers or are on. No, but
0: they're, people, no, yeah. but both actually. I mean, just yep. watching the coverage. So I'm just, it, it'll be fascinating to see what this means in terms of the whole Commonwealth debate uh, and and discussion. Andrew, just as you've um, as you've uh, joined in, uh, you're going to like this story because it, it might have to do also with the future of fetching bags and how things run more efficiently. Because uh, we're crossing uh, to Bern right now. Because for the last four days, the organization Swiss Skills. Has offered young students a chance to learn more about 150 professions. The fair in Bern takes place every four years, a bit like the Olympics, uh, and is a massive crowd pleaser with more than 100,000 visitors in total attending. I'm very happy to say that I'm joined by the Managing Director right now of Swiss Skills, uh, André burri uh, Good morning, André. Hi. Hi, I'm glad, we, I'm, I'm glad we got you because uh, it was it was it was tough reaching you in in Bern. So maybe that means that the people in charge of laying cables uh, or whatever that skill was uh, <laughs> was wasn't going so well. But tell us, this is this is a fascinating topic for us. Uh, as you might know, uh, Monocle is a, a huge fan and and certainly a big proponent of apprenticeships and why they're important. And of course, mm-hmm. Switzerland takes very much a leadership role in this, uh, not just within a European context, but certainly globally. So tell us, uh in maybe as short a shorter manner as possible, what are the big draws? What do you know, what are what are the, uh, let's say, the events, if you want to call them that, or certainly the, the, the various rounds that you're doing that, that people gather around, that they want to see? What, what are the important skills at the moment that uh, people get excited about?
9: Yeah, I, may, I maybe start with the reason of this event. So first of all, we make it every sec- second year, not every fourth year. So Oh, it's like the winter and summer Olympics. It's even even every second year, yes. Yeah, as I'm a, uh, I I used to to read Monocle, I'm still reading Monocle. I mean, basically, it's this patient of handcraft. And uh, as you have to know, in Switzerland, 80%, 60% of young people choose the way of um, taking a job instead of going to to an academic path. And... The reason of this event that we show 150 uh, skills of a totally 220 we have in Switzerland is that young people can access and see the variety of possibilities you're going to have if you choose a vocational education uh, way in Switzerland. And yes, I told you we have 85 competitions going on at the moment. Yesterday we had 85 new Swiss uh, champions. And I think especially for the international uh, audiences interesting. For example, we got a Swiss champion in cleaning or we got a Swiss champion in micromechanic. We have a Swiss champion in cooking. And uh, if you see this event, you will be going to have about every fifth young person in Switzerland coming to see this event and coming to see the possibility, what he can do when he is uh, 17 to, to choose a job in Switzerland.
0: And, and when it's, it's 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 fascinating because so many people, Andre, and I say people, meaning whether they're corporates, whether they're other governments, uh, are, are you know they they come to Switzerland. You're trying to 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 learn how to do this, thinking that there's there's maybe a swift policy that they can put into place. Can they set up a division of their business to make this happen? But as we know, not that easy, is it? Because this is something which is. It's, it's generational now here, but if someone is listening to this, maybe on the other side of the world uh, or just across the border, do you mm-hmm. think that there are even, let's say, swift fixes that can come into a company, that can come into a, a region of a country to start to build this type of culture of apprenticeships?
9: Yeah, it's quite funny because we, we, we had, for example, a Wednesday, an event where we had 85 investors from 85 countries. Um, coming to see uh, the event itself, and coming to see how our, our system works. And they, for example, had a, a nice talk with um, Google and Johnson & Johnson, as an example, who are also have locations or, let's say, companies' um, um, offices in Switzerland. And they are using our system, for example, to educate um, young people in the US with the way how we are doing it in Switzerland. So there are quite a lot of uh, parts you can use from our system in other cultures as well. So uh, we we do the same with Brazil. We have a very nice cooperation with them, where they uh, used to work with our schools together. We have interactions with Israel, for example, where we had a long meeting that they see how companies do it in Switzerland, and that's one part of the event where you have many international people coming to see how the Swiss system is working and what they can adapt from them. And we are very often, we we really try to show the system and to to also show all the secrets of them that uh, young people can improve. I mean, the main reason of the event is that we can improve young people, that they can really, uh, let's say, work on their talents. And we would like to make this as well global. That's why we invite so many countries to Switzerland to see our system, that uh, they can take one part of it to their countries and looked at the apprenticeship or the way young people can start a job uh, can get better.
0: And just before we go, uh, if we think about this in Olympic terms, uh, what what are the events that people get excited about? What what is the equivalent of, of jumping off the, the high diving board, or what is the equivalent of the of the hundred meter uh, sprinting uh, event? Uh, what, what's what's the big crowd pleaser?
9: Yeah, I think there are two reasons. One of all that they have to show in a short moment, what they really can do. And the other part is that uh, some of them will be uh, part of a national team and then uh, being part of the World Skills competition, which are taking place uh, next year or 2024. And uh, yeah, then they can get a medal for Switzerland. Very and good. as you know, Switzerland is one of the, yes, normally we are one of the top three countries. So being part of a Swiss national team is certainly one reason why they are doing it as well.
0: Very good, uh, Andre. Great joining us from Bern uh, from the uh, Swiss Skills uh, event, uh, which uh, continues there. Just uh, before we go, as we say, we ran a little bit uh, over time today. Uh, Julian, if, if uh, your son or daughter said, uh, you know what, Mom, Dad, I'm not so interested in going to uh, to university. Uh, I want to be a baker and you don't need to go to university. I mean, maybe if you want to run a big baking chain, you want an MBA, um, you'd be good with that?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm a fan of the whole apprentice, um, the whole structure of it in this country. And I know that it's the backbone of this country and it's part of why this country is so efficient in every way. And when they come and fix your loo, they, they, they're so efficient at it and they do it so well and they clean up after themselves and they're all so well trained. I do think it's a little unfair, the whole educational system, which means that, Far fewer youngsters go to university than in other countries.
0: But you still have a bathroom that functions.
2: Great, but I, I, I want I, my I, children to go to university. They have far more opportunities globally. Okay. They're not gonna stay in this country.
0: Uh, I'm gonna ask the uh, the professor here, <laughs> uh, Markus Schugel from, from St. Gallen University. Again, you're German, you're based over here. Uh, he's saying they've got 85 ambassadors, though uh, I don't think they forced them to go to this event. Uh, people are scratching their head how it, how it works. What's your take?
4: Uh, it's the same in germany we've got the same apprenticeship like in like in switzerland a little bit and and just from the economic side this is the reason that we've got in, in both countries in switzerland of course in germany it's a question coming up i think you've got a wealthy middle class out of this out of this situation that you've got different ways different pathways to your professions and i think the choice should be much better prepared in, in Switzerland. You you can't really choose going to the to the to the university. You get checked so early on your skills if you make it to the gymnasium. And I think this is not the right way of doing it because the pressure mounts so much that the question what you want to do is always in, okay, you don't make it to the gymnasium. Well take another path. So Especially here in Zurich, I think there's a huge amount of reform necessary to get the people really motivated to make a choice for themselves. Now it's a choice that's pushed by the by the the, the society that you're living in. And what I'm seeing at my university is that a lot of people start out doing business administration because they don't know what to do. <laughs> so they get there, and then we need to educate them, and then they see it's mathematics, it's accounting, and they say, ooh, I didn't wanted to do something else. But the educated choice should be something that young people should get much more much better.
0: Andrew, if you had a choice and you didn't go to journalist uh, apprentice school, if you had an opportunity, what would it have been?
4: Uh,
8: I don't know. I, uh, the, uh, apprenticeships you know, are appealing. And you know, I think whatever you, your craft is, the, the notion that you have to go through an academic career to kind of get there, it, it, it doesn't seem to hold up these days. And I think it's also amazing you know, in our world, Tyler, how many people you, m- you meet who didn't you need know, they, their entrepreneurial skills or their, their passion to do something you know, it was, was set in course when they were in their teens and they, they just went for it and they didn't have to kind of go through the formal education. Amazing how many
0: people learn on the job. Indeed. Is Emma Nelson still there? I She's am stuck climbing. around. Emma, quickly before we'll, go, we'll try to end the show in the next one minute. What, what, what would your internship have been?
1: Oh, I think I would have been queen.
0: Okay. <laughs> I, I, I like that. I think we also set that up. I think very well. It was it was certainly uh, on, the, on the job training uh, at, <laughs> at quite at quite a stretch. Uh, listen, wonderful having everyone. Uh, thanks to our listeners uh, as well for sticking around uh, for 75 minutes uh, today. Juliet, Lindley, Marcus, Shugel, Josh Fenner, Emma Nelson, uh, both here and in London. Also, Rudolf Hellman in Stockholm, Andre Bury down in Bern, Christoph Amand in and out. Uh, up in Berlin, our producers today were Desiree Bendley and James, our studio manager in Zurich, was Desiree Bandley. And Nora Hall has been looking after the audio in London. I'm Tyler Brulé. Monocle on Sunday returns next week. Enjoy the weekend. Goodbye.